welcome to a, uh, a webinar organized by the um, Alliance for the Genetic Etiologies of Neurodevelopmental Disorders and Autism or AGENDA, Combined Brain and REN, the Rare Epilepsy Network. So the three organizations, which have a lot of overlap in terms of members and also mission, um, have collaborated to bring you an interesting scientific discussion from a researcher at Cardiff University who used incredibly large data sets to look at uh, a genetics first approach to the heterogeneity of autism. And um, while the outcome was autism and autism features, um, we can think about this approach being used for a number of different possible outcomes. Um, I'm glad there's so many people on. This is meant to be a really, really hearty discussion. You don't have to be a yes person if you have a question about the data or a question about the approach or an idea or a doubt or something to consider. Everything is on the table. Um, I wanna say Dr. Chawner, um, I'll introduce him, but I also wanna say that he is the perfect person besides being the first author on this publication. He's also the perfect person to be giving this presentation. So he has been, um, he's a postdoctoral scientist working to understand genes on child development. And he works at the MRC Center for Neuropsychiatric Genetics and Genomics at Cardiff. Um, his, his research is focused on rare genetic syndromes associated with things like intellectual disability, autism, and schizophrenia. Um, this all started in 2015 when he completed a research fellowship that looked at the developmental um, the development of kids who are at high risk of schizophrenia because of uh, 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. So not only does he work scientifically in the lab, he works directly with families. He works um, on something called Imagine ID, a collaboration between Cardiff and uh, UCL and Cambridge University, which studies longer term behavior and mental health in children and young people um, with intellectual disability that has a genetic cause. So he's also perfect because he is one of the rare researchers that's truly interested in engaging with the public. Um, he's organized patient conferences. He works closely with patient advocacy groups. Um, and also his willingness to participate on this webinar, which is on a Friday evening right during happy hour in the UK shows how dedicated he is to making sure that science is communicated to the community. Um, he's also, and I'm sure you can email him afterwards, presented science in really unique um, and creative ways like at festivals and um, at art exhibits. So um, without any further ado, I am going to actually stop my video. If anyone has a question, we're gonna hold questions until after his presentation, unless there's something like really urgent. But use the Q&A button, which is if you scroll, even scroll over without even clicking your mouse button at the bottom of our screen, um, there's a Q&A with two little bubbles. Click on that and enter your question and I'll see it. And um, I will answer them in the, either the order in which they were received or the number of, of the similar questions, if that makes sense. So I'm not gonna ask the same question over and over again. I'll try to make sure everybody's questions are addressed. Um, and it is being recorded. If you ask a question and you want your name to be mentioned, please put that in the question. Um, otherwise, I'm gonna assume that you wanna ask it anonymously. That's kind of the safe way to do it, right? So, um, and I won't mention your name or anything. So um, I'm gonna put my 
uh, video off and uh, take it away, Dr. Chawner. Thank you for that uh, lovely introduction. And um, it's wonderful to be here. My research focuses on um, rare genetic conditions and autism. So it's really wonderful to be able to share my research with um, with your organization that's, uh, whose aims heavily overlap with the research I've been doing in the UK. Um, so first, I thought I'd go into a bit of a, a bit of background into why we wanted to do the research, and then I'll kind of walk through what we found in the recently published paper. Um, so um, one of the reasons we're interested in the area of autism rare genetic conditions is because there have been large studies looking at uh, cohorts of um, autistic individuals and controls, and several genetic conditions were found um, to be occur at a higher rate in the autism cohort versus controls. Um, and from this, several um, genetic conditions have been identified as risk factors for autism. Yet, not a, lo a lot was known about um, the the full clinical profiles of these conditions, just the kind of statistical association. And the um, genetic conditions um, that I've focused on in my work have been caused by copy number variants. So these are um, large chromosomal changes, which we define as kind of more than 1000 DNA letters. So either kind of a deletion, so a chunk of a chromosome missing, or duplication, an extra section of chromosome. Um, and it has been said by some that CMVs are perhaps the most common um, cause of autism that we can identify. And although individual genetic conditions can be rare in the population, collectively they may um, account for 10 to 15 percent of, of autistic individuals and that proportion is only likely to increase as um, we're able to as genetic technologies improve and genetic testing becomes more widespread. Um, to give a bit of a flavour of the UK context clinically, there's been a huge increase in genetic testing. Over 4,000 new diagnoses are made each year of, chil of children who are referred to genetic clinics often because of developmental delay. Um, even though there's been expansion in genetic testing and in the kind of genetic technologies, the long-term information on kind of clinical prognosis is lacking. Parents want to know what does this genetic diagnosis actually mean for their child. In some ways, the genetic um, technologies have been advancing faster than our kind of clinical understanding. Within the UK, um, families should be referred for genetic testing following um, a diagnosis of autism. Um, if there's also kind of comorbidities such as intellectual disability or um, dysmorphic physical features. However, in practice, um, it varies a lot regionally whether this is actually implemented. Um, and I think another important reason why there should be research into autism and genetic conditions is because it's currently an underrepresented group in research. Um, 
Many children with autism and genetic conditions also have um, intellectual disability, um, yet um, only 6% of all autism research includes individuals with intellectual disability. Um, this means kind of research that's presented at conferences or that gets funded will be biased towards those individuals with kind of typical IQ or high IQ. And in fact, 50% of individuals with autism have intellectual disability. So I kind of see um, research into genetic etiologies of autism and intellectual disability as being an uh, important way of kind of overcoming this research bias. Um, another important reason is um, in terms of kind of health policy, genomics is becoming increasingly important. So this is a screenshot of a newspaper article in the UK where there's been discussion whether all children should receive genomic sequencing at birth. I mean, it's very ambitious and it, people are unsure whether this will actually happen, but it's very, genomics is very much on the forefront of um, the UK's health agenda. And I'm aware in the US there's um, a healthcare system, Geisinger, where they've recently um, genome sequenced all adults in their care and through which they've identified rare genetic conditions. Um, so I guess my argument is that this issue is only becoming more and more important in the future, especially if um, health services go down this route of genomic screening. Um, another reason why we're interested to look at autism in genetic conditions is that there's huge variability in outcomes within ASD. Um, there's this quote from Dr. Stephen Shaw, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism, kind of getting at that there can be huge variability in terms of communication levels, IQ, independence and developmental trajectories. And in research, we call this heterogeneity. Um, and individuals can have different combinations of the, sim the symptom domains of autism, such as communication, social interaction and repetitive interests. And there's some people who say that genetics may explain this variability um, and whether autism should be reconceptualized as autisms and in, where autisms are a collection of gen different genetic etiologies. Um, here I present kind of two possible models. The top model is um, whereby different genetic conditions lead to the same autism profile. And then at the bottom is kind of the, um, at the other end of the spectrum, sort of different genetic conditions lead to different autism subtypes. Um, and this has clinical implications. Um, is autism support for one genetic condition appropriate for another genetic condition? Or um, can there be, or are there, or, or are there autism kind of supports that can be applied across genetic conditions? So that's kind of a bit of an overview of the sort of research and clinical reasons why we wanted um, 
to investigate the autism profiles of different genetic conditions. And this was recently published in the American Journal of Psychiatry. And um, one thing I wanted to point out, so you can see the many, many names on here. And so this, although I'm presenting here today, this work um, involved many um, clinicians and researchers from across Europe and the US. So what did we actually do in the research? 547 individuals with genetic conditions were assessed for autism. And we focused on four um, genetic conditions, 16p deletion, 16p duplication, 22q deletion, and 22q duplication. The average age was tw 12, but age varied from around age four to um, young adulthood. And as a comparison data, we also um, accessed data on over 2,000 individuals who had autism, but not one of um, the four genetic conditions. Um, in terms of the autism assessment, the autism diagnostic interview revised was conducted. Um, this is quite an in-depth interview. It takes around one to three hours. We asked the parent or caregiver to think back to when their child was under five. Um, for some families, um, it was a positive experience thinking back. For others, it brought up quite difficult times in their child's development, both in terms of their um, sort of language and social development, but also in terms of physical health sometimes. The sort of questions we asked were, when did they say their first word? Um, did they play pretend games? Um, were they interested in playing with other children? Um, now, this is just a snapshot of the questions. Um, an answer just to one of these um, wouldn't, necess wouldn't necessarily influence um, awesome diagnosis, but it'd be the pattern of responses across these questions. And importantly, behaviours had to be frequent and disruptive to family life to reach clinical thresholds. Um, as I mentioned, it was an international effort. So at, um, it was myself and the study lead, Professor Marion Vandenbree from Cardiff in Wales in the United Kingdom. But we also collaborated with Professor Wendy Chung from Simons VIP. And there were also other collaborators from um, across the US and Europe. Um, in terms of um, the patient advocacy groups, we worked with in, within the UK. Um, we're supported by Max Appeal and 22 Crew um, organisations for 22Q deletion, and also for um, by Unique, um, a charity for rare chromosome disorders in the UK. Um, and um, we're also supported by NHS medical genetic clinics who helped us um, connect to families. Um, as, uh, there's mechanisms uh, whereby regional genetic clinics, um, they hold uh, patient lists who can be contacted to take part in research. And um, it, this, the, the data was collected over six years and 
what and an interesting part of the project was that instead of inviting people to Cardiff we visited um, families in their homes so we got to travel to Northern Ireland to Scotland um, around Wales and England you know into the cities and the rural areas and um, it was great to meet a wide range of families. So on to the study findings. First, we looked at um, the proportion of individuals who met um, strict ASD criteria. And um, on the autism assessment we used, individuals had to meet thresholds in the communication, social interaction and repetitive interest domains. And um, we found um, 43% of 16p deletion carriers um, met criteria for 16p duplication, it was 58%, for 22q deletion it was 23%, and for 22q 1.2 duplication it was 44%. Um, so I guess there's two things to point out. Um, this is much higher than um, the general population rate for ASD, which is 1% to 2%, depending on the study. Um, so autism is, you know, an important feature of these conditions, um, but also it's not 100%. So um, there's individuals who don't meet um, the strict autism criteria. However, we looked into the data a bit further and we found that there was actually um, a large proportion of individuals who met the clinical thresholds for, say, the communication domain, but perhaps for not the other domains. So although they didn't have, they didn't meet criteria for autism, they still had clinically significant symptoms that were on the spectrum. And um, for 16p duplication, 90% of those who didn't meet um, autism criteria had clinically significant symptoms. And we think this is important to highlight because um, without these individuals wouldn't get an autism diagnosis, which means they often wouldn't then go on to receive kind of um, uh, support um, for autism symptoms. The next thing we looked at was autism profile. Um, now this is a very kind of um, busy graph, so I'll just kind of go through it. Each row is a different um, genetic condition, so 16p deletion, 22q duplication, 22q deletion, and then 16p duplication. And then each column is a different aspect of the autism profile that we looked at. So there's social interactions, motor mannerisms, and then further along there's kind of verbal IQ skills. And then the colour um, indicates the level of impairment. So dark purple shows a strong impairment and a light yellow colour um, represents a relatively weaker impairment. And I guess um, thing to highlight is um, is that you can see visually um, each condition has its own profile and we were able to confirm this statistically. Um, next we looked at we just looked at individuals who had a genetic condition and met autism criteria and we compared their profiles to individuals with autism who didn't have one of these genetic conditions. So in the pink line, we have um, those are individuals with autism without one of the four genetic conditions. And you can see each genetic condition had its own 
kind of unique autism profile. However, although we found differences between the genetic conditions, we wanted to try and quantify, you know, how large are these differences? Are they clinically meaningful? You know, um, you know, was it a small or big difference? And so we, um, we wanted to look at between group variability. So this would be the proportion of difference that's explained by the type of a genetic condition. Um, say, you know, 22Q versus 16P. And then we also looked at within group variability. Um, so that's individual differences irrespective of the genetic condition. And we used um, a statistical method that gave us a number from zero to 100, where zero is no difference and 100 was very different. And for each of the aspects of the Orson profile we looked at, it was around between one and 21. So yes, there are differences, um, but they're not that large. Um, and in fact, we found the within group variation. So the individual differences were quite large, um, kind of 80 to 90%. Um, and to kind of demonstrate this visually in this graph here. So along the bottom, we have kind of zero autism symptoms and then at the other end 50 autism symptoms and then going up the graph is the index of the number of individuals and then each different color is a different genetic condition and so we can see yes each genetic condition has its own unique profile shape but there's a lot of overlap and in all the genetic conditions there were individuals who had low autism symptoms and high autism symptoms and we find the same for IQ uh, in all groups there was individuals with IQ between 50 to 60 and then we had individuals with IQs above 100 in all groups um, so although we there are differences between genetic conditions actually the what we're finding is the differences within a genetic condition is larger So to kind of um, wrap up, our research focused on four genetic conditions and we confirmed that the um, uh, rates of autism in these conditions was high. Um, but we also found that individuals who don't meet strict autism criteria often still experience clinically important symptoms. We find that each genetic condition has its own unique autism symptom profile but there's a lot of overlap indicating that clinical support could be grouped for different rare genetic conditions. Um, some kind of implications to this work. Um, current autism criteria may not always be appropriate for children with rare genetic conditions. Um, um, Individuals who don't meet strict autism criteria still may experience clinically significant issues, say, in the domain of communication or, or social interaction, and that a domain-based functional approach um, would perhaps be more appropriate. We also feel that there should be greater awareness of genetics in autism services. You know, um, this work finds, you know, high levels of autism symptoms in these uh, conditions. Yet so we um, 
from discussing with families, many say they've been told by their clinician that you can't have a genetic condition and a diagnosis of autism, which is just wrong. It, if anything, individuals um, who get diagnosed with certain rare genetic conditions should be fast-tracked for autism diagnostic and support services. Um, you know, it's often said in, you know, one of the goals of autism genetics research is to improve um, is to improve kind of medical care and support. But from some of the families we've been discussing, the genetic diagnosis actually can be a barrier to receive autism support. Um, and we don't think this is because clinicians are kind of, um, you know, we think they're meaning well, but there just needs to be greater education in medical genetics about autism and vice versa. Autism services need to have a greater um, understanding of genomics. Um, and the fact that we find huge variability within genetic conditions um, highlights that um, it's not just the genetic, it's not just the genetic condition and that's leading to the autism. Other factors need to be investigate, need to be investigated so we can understand why two children with the same genetic condition, one may develop autism and the other may not. So future directions, you know, a limitation of this work is that we focused on um, for genetic conditions, but we want to expand this work across a, range, a wider range of genetic conditions. Um, we also want to look within population cohorts because at the moment we're only capturing individuals who get diagnosed through health services. There are likely to be many individuals in the population who have a genetic condition um, which hasn't been identified yet. Um, and we also want to explore further what level of difference between genetic conditions is clinically meaningful. And it's this affects research designs. If you kind of, if you go looking for differences, you'll find differences. If you go looking for similarities, you can find similarities. So I guess the question is what's clinically important? Um, and I guess a future direction is that we want to look within the genes to mental health network then part of is what explains variability um, in outcomes with genetic conditions. And this could be um, additional genetic factors or kind of environmental factors such as access to early support and uh, education interventions. Um, so I'd like to thank all the children and families who took part, um, all the patient advocacy groups who supported this work, um, all the various collaborators, some who are pictured here, but this was really the work of many, many people. Um, and I'd like to yeah, thank you for listening and I'm looking forward to your questions and further discussion of this work.